Welcome to World Build With Us, the podcast where we create fantastical worlds with help from you, our listeners. My name is Rob Hilferty. I'm here with Chris Brunty and Daniel Quinn, my beloved friends and co-hosts. On today's episode, we are interviewing author Shweta Tukarar, and we're going to shoot to that interview now. And welcome. Today we are here with author Shweta Takarar, and we're just really happy because we get to sit down and talk to a Polish author, and I'm ready to go. So for those of us who might not know you too well, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, I... I'll just throw out some random stuff. <laughs> I, I really like chocolate covered almonds. I believe in magic. The reason that I write fantasy is because I want to see the mythology that I grew up with as a Hindu used in books, but also to see characters who look like me. And uh, let's see, what's something random? Oh, I, as you know, I, I have a master's in German literature that I never use. <laughs> I definitely want to know. So you've said it before, you believe in magic and you give a little bit of an explanation in some other interviews I've seen. Can you tell me what do you really mean by I believe in magic? What do you mean by that? I mean that I think it, I, I believe that it does exist. And I think that it, and one of the reasons that I love stories like Holly Black's, and that's what I, you know, she actually was one of the people who inspired me to write what I do, is the idea that it's just outside, like just beyond the corner of your eye. And if you glance just the right way at the right time, you might see it. You might mm -hmm. stumble into it. But I definitely do believe magic exists. I don't know that it takes the form of like wizards flinging fireballs, but I do think it <laughs> We definitely need some of that in 2020, I, I believe. <laughs> You're the, the fireball slinging or magic? <laughs> yeah, both, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, let me, so this, this, really piques my curiosity. Have you ever experienced anything that you would consider magical or supernatural? Yes. And Ooh. the problem is when you try to talk about this stuff, it doesn't carry because when I was younger, and I hope this comes back one day, but when I was younger, I actually could feel magic in the air. And as much of a descriptive writer as I am, I have no words to tell you what that was like, but it was really amazing. And I can often feel the energy of places and that can be helpful, too, because they'll tell me, OK, this is actually not a place you want to be. But but yeah, I, I definitely did. And I have always carried these really rich worlds inside me since I was tiny. I think I was probably born with them even. And I just never doubted because to me, I could feel it. So it's a more intuitive process for you. Yes. And speaking of intuitive processes, uh, how would you relate that kind of to your writing? And how does that belief and magic that you feel relate to your writing style? Or are you the exact opposite when it comes to your writing? Is it just hard, like outlines, you know, everything planned out from the go? Oh, God, I wish it were. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, what I decided was I wanted to create, try, and obviously that's going to vary on the reader, right? But I wanted to, with my ideal reader, I wanted to evoke the sense of the numinous that I feel in, in my writing. And I'm very descriptive. I see things in, you know, in my mental eye. And I, so I try to paint with words as it were, but I really want to just take that feeling I feel and whether it's, and sometimes to inspire myself, I have to go back and read other people's work or take walks outside or what, you know, in pre COVID times, I would go into little shops that were just full of amazing things and just refill that creative well inside me and then just let my imagination start 
taking this and that and just rolling it together into something new. And then, you know, for example, if you told me, uh, I don't know, come up with a story, I'm, I'm looking around, come up with a story about this, this chair with yellow upholstery on it, I would start thinking, well, who would sit on that? And where would it be? And what would make it special? And yeah, so I guess like that. And how could I tie it into something that, because I wouldn't know how to write a story that doesn't have magic in it in some way. I just, I wouldn't. Speaking of that, that magic um, that comes across in, this, in your stories, I think it would be helpful if we got to hear your voice reading some of it um, from Stardaughter, which is your latest novel. Uh, so before I read my little excerpt, uh, I'll, give, I'll give a little history about it too. Sure. So Stardaughter is my first published novel. It is a young adult fantasy about a, a girl who is half star and half human. And it came about because after I had queried my first novel, which went nowhere, I was querying for 13 months, you know, and that oh was pretty gosh. crushing. And the funny thing is I was at that time, I was thinking, oh, I'm never going to have another idea, which is hilarious because of course I would, but I was thinking, <laughs> oh, you know, what am I going to do? And I was, uh, and I, back in, I think 2002, I had found Neil Gaiman's and Charles Vess's illustrated novel, Stardust. And I mm -hmm. bought it knowing nothing about it, just thinking the title sounded good and the cover looked neat. And I took it home and read it. And I read it a few more times over the years. And I watched the movie version when it came out in 2007. And then in 2013, while I was, you know, wrapping up the first round of querying with that novel, with my trunk novel, I suddenly thought, you know, I want to write a novel of, or, sorry, I want to write a short story about a girl whose mother is from a Hindu constellation. And then I, as I started to think about what that story would be, because as you know, there's a big difference between having an idea and having a plot. So, yes. no. yeah. <laughs> so what is the story actually going to be about? Okay, it's about this girl, but what happens? And I realized pretty quickly that it was going to need to be a quest because her mom, her star mom had already gone back to the heavens and you can't really fit quests into short stories. So it was going to have to be a novel. And I just started thinking about, again, like what we were discussing a couple of minutes ago, what are the things that would enchant me? What are the things that I would, you know, would make me feel magical? And for one, definitely the magical night market that I'm about to read an excerpt from. But just, you know, what are all the beautiful things that would make me feel like I had been swept away to another dimension, another realm, another world? And and so it took me how many? It ended up being six drafts. Oh no, sorry, nine drafts. Right over six years. That's what it was. Of the I whole novel, nine drafts. Yep. It, it, the, the, it's funny because I went back and looked at my first draft after I had gotten the first past pages of this. And for anyone listening who doesn't know, first past pages are when your book is laid out like it's going to be printed as a book. It's in that mm. design. It's in that font, all that stuff. And you're reading it one last time for, to make any small changes. Your editor really does not want you to make big changes at that point. And sometimes they'll even right. charge you if you do, but because then they have to do extra work. But the, you know, you're reading it just one last time to make sure that there were no small, you know, catch any last typos that the copy editor and proofreader missed, or if you noticed, and I did notice a few things, but anyway. So as I, I went back and looked at that first draft, and it was amazing to me to see how it had changed mm -hmm. because most of it had changed, almost everything, except Sheetal's first journal entry. And even that, the end of that changed, but almost everything changed since then. And it's so funny because I think, especially new writers when they're starting out, they often they often have this idea that a book is fully formed like the way Athena just came off Zeus's head, right? Like uh -huh. and, and that's not how it is at all. So so after, you know, after those nine drafts, this is the book that I'm holding in my hand. 
<laughs> and I will read to you from it. What, so Sheetal, the main character, is half, like I said, uh, half star, half human. And as she gets closer to her 17th birthday, her starry heritage, her, you know, her starry nature that she's pushed down all this time because her mother has gone back to the sky and left her alone in the human world. So she's been hiding it, right? Like her hair is silver. She's been dying at her black her whole life. She doesn't know how to control her flame because no one ever taught her since she wasn't up in the sky. And especially her human auntie, her foy is really, really determined for that she still hide her magic so that she's safe out in the human world. So she still doesn't know anything. And as and as she gets closer to her 17th birthday, those things start coming up again. Like the dye in her hair stops working. She accidentally burns her dad. And that's the reason she has to go find her mom anyway, because for that kind of wound, only a drop of healing star's blood can help. But her own blood is diluted since she's half human. So she goes to the, she finds out her auntie finally tells her that there is a magical night market right there in her town of Edison, New Jersey. And they go there to try to find a way to uh, get help that would let Sheetal not have to go on this journey to find her mom. And she, it ends up not working. Of course she has to go, but the, Mm -hmm. but I wrote this market to be the night market of my dreams that it's, I just, I, I spent years just filling it with all the wonderful things I could think of to the point that my agent actually said, okay, this is a great thing, but you're going to have to cut some of it. Oh, no. <laughs> and make sure that the story continues. She still can't just go shopping. Forever, <laughs> right. <laughs> so I did that. It was painful, but I did that. So basically, you know, Sheetal is here with her mom, or I'm sorry, not with her mom, uh, with her auntie and her best friend, Minal, to look for something that can try to help her dad. And of course, they don't find it. And this is when they just arrived there. Mm-hmm. Before Sheetal knew it, she stood inside the market, its sinuous allure slinking into her bones and her blood. Music swirled invitingly through her as she gazed at the glimmering horizon. Her thoughts bloomed with wonder, all jewel tones and reinvigorating hope. If there was a way to save dad, it would be here. All around them, intricately decorated stalls overflowed with impossible goods, and the patrons who browsed them were just as odd. A family of kinaras, their equine heads fusing seamlessly with their human lower bodies, examined a carved copper lantern encrusted with gems and colors Sheetal had never seen before. Nearby, an upsara who might have been sculpted from marble, she was so enticing, haggled over a selection of black and silver bottles shaped like birds in flight. But I want green, she said, her perfect mouth set in a pout. I'm sorry, said the stall owner, a young man who could have himself been the hero in a Bollywood love story. But all I have in stock is what you see here. Sheetal stood rooted to the mosaic tiled floor, trying really hard not to ogle. By accident or ardent wish, she'd stumbled into a mythic fairyland. Sorry, a mythic wonderland. It was all so strange, so seductive, that if this had been any other day, she would have been raring to see it all taste it all, to unearth rusty keys to hidden cabinets of curiosities, and gulp down steaming purple potions that would send her on adventures in imaginary realms. Wow. See, I I love seeing, uh, hearing the words of the writer, um, you know, express exactly what's on the page, which we don't often get to do, especially during COVID times. Um, (laughs) But I had a follow-up question here. So I feel feel like in Stardaughter, you're fearless about using um, terminology or cultural terminology that comes from either Hindu mythology or Desi culture, um, and then li- leaving the readers to figure it out, um, which which is something that I think um, even in sci-fi, a lot of writers have to struggle with because they have to invent language. 
um, and then paint the world with it. So what um, what advice could you give to writers who have to walk that fine line between like the in and the out crowd when it comes to like cultural references or world building that, you know, they may not be familiar with? That's actually a great question. And before I answer, I want to ask you one. Did you notice that I deliberately did not italicize those words? Yes, that's what I like, because I feel like it makes it almost that this isn't an alien thing to encounter. This is just part of the world and you have to deal with it. So that's why I wanted to know what, what's your take with yes. that? Yes. Well, okay. So first to answer my own question, the I you know, I it's so funny because years ago, I just mindlessly italicized too, because that's what we've been taught to do. And right. it was somebody else who pointed out how weird that was and how it, italics are intended to other, right? Mm-hmm. They're intended exactly. to call attention to something. Mm-hmm. And if we're not going to italicize the word fairy, then it makes absolutely no sense that I'm going to italicize the word upsara, right? There's mm-hmm. no reason for it. I'm not, I'm, I, I'm not emphasizing upsara. It's just there. So I, you know, so I made that choice and I know some publishers are starting to do that as well, which makes me very happy. And my editor was completely on board with that. And mm-hmm. as for the how to find that balance, I think that it's a question of craft. I think a good writer can make anything accessible. And I will mm-hmm. define stuff if I need to, but I try to do it in a way that is just describing the way that I would describe anything else rather than making a point of saying mm-hmm. this word means blah, blah, blah. And if it's, you know, and as my, as writer, my job is again, to make things accessible. So if I have done my job well, it won't matter that maybe you don't know what a particular word means. You'll be able to fill right. in the context. You'll get the meaning from context and you'll be able to fill it in for yourself. And if you still really need to know what it means, then you can look it up. We live in an age of Google for crying out loud. Absolutely. And I, f- I feel like I see that all the time, especially when it comes to fantasy worlds, you know, like in a world where, you know, you see a lot of fantasy world building where you can create these casts and these species and races and monsters you know that all have to do kind of the same thing it makes no sense that you know like they don't have to we don't have to italicize elves or like you said fairies so yeah i i'm i'm totally with you on that you know like in figuring out how to intuit that is part of the craft and part of the like skill when it comes to fantasy world building in particular we were talking to uh victoria sandberg who writes fantasy flash fiction and the amount of like craft that you have to put into like getting a fantasy story from less than 500 words like is absolutely mind-blowing to me so yeah i don't know where my point was with that but (laughs) hopefully someone has a segue out of it (laughs) and chris had a question i mean i have great segues as we all know oh uh (laughs) My my question was going to be: uh, Every culture has touch tones uh, or uh, cornerstones that you would say are indicative to uh, its writings or someone who writes from that background. Uh, what would you say is a co- commonality between uh, your stories? I definitely think that, like we were saying earlier, the the sense to to um, evoke the numinous, and also I like playing with the idea of of tropes and not following them i mean a good trope we all know what to expect and that can be wonderful comfort food right like if you pick up a book and you know that it's going to go a certain way that's there's a lot of comfort to be found in that but i like to do the opposite (laughs) and uh come up with things that hopefully you won't see coming and just because i think too that we have and i've thought about this a lot in terms of 
folklore and mythology as well, but it ties into this, that if, and I've put it like this in essays elsewhere, that to use folklore as an example, if we have, if all the folklore of the world is a rainbow, why are we only painting in red when we have all these colors to choose from? And so I feel like the same thing goes with stories that I want to, I want us to be able to step outside the familiar, well-trod path and do something new. And hopefully my work does that. I try to anyway. So I would say that's definitely a commonality. And I, as you know, I can't imagine ever not writing Desi characters, even if what I end up writing after, you know, going forward after the, my next book comes out and maybe a, a third, depending on whether my editor decides that she wants to pick that up as an option book or not. But if I move past this mythological universe, what I would do next would have magic for sure, wh- whatever that looked like. And it would have Desi characters. And I made that choice when I started writing in seriously in 2006, 2007, because especially back then, I didn't see anybody who looked like me. And I really wanted to change that. I mean, I didn't, there's no way I can go back and have that for kid me, but at least I could provide it for the kids today. I couldn't agree more, especially when there's so many cool things that we are missing out of just because we have such like a, uh, a Eurocentric viewpoint, especially when it comes to like mythology and fantasy, you know, everything's Tolkien-esque in a lot of ways, but we're missing out on such cool uh, and interesting stories that we could otherwise be telling about something like Rakshasa or Java yes. or yes, exactly. Uh, so, so I would love to ask you, what are some of your favorite? Like, man, how have we not had so many stories about X or Y or something like that? You know, I'd, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on that. Oh goodness, I mean. There's, you know, even just thinking like there are creatures and this is what I was saying earlier before we started recording about how it's weird to be in this position of quote unquote expert because I'm not, you know, I'm uh, what we at least in the old when I was younger, what we used to call an ABCD, an American born confused Desi, meaning somebody who was born and raised here and has a, you know, has a completely different worldview than somebody who would have grown up in India. And no, you know, my, so my, it's funny because here I would get looked at as someone who knows what she's talking about, but I actually had to do a lot of research on my own to try to find out about the stories I just don't know anything about or the folklore that I just don't know anything about from my own heritage. And that's definitely not something that is a problem with, as you were saying, Eurocentric folklore, Eurocentric centric mythology. We don't have to worry about that because we get inundated with it here. Mm-hmm. And and even elsewhere, too, thanks to, you know, colonialism and white supremacy. So it's been interesting that I and I worry sometimes that when I'm talking about this stuff, I'm going to get it, quote unquote, wrong because I'm just going on what I know. And and of course, but of course, then with folklore, there's no right version of anything. I have to say, like there are a million versions of any story. So that said, stories that I, I have discovered as I've gone through awesome witchy creatures called Dian. There are, you know, definitely Rakshasas and Rakshasis. I would love to see more about them. Uh, just goodness. I mean, there's, you know, Kinaras are, which I had mentioned in my excerpt are depending on the story, either lion headed or horse headed creatures. And, uh, and like Nogs, my, the book that I'm waiting for notes on for my editor has Nogs in it, which, and Garuds and, uh, in in Hindu and Buddhist lore, the Garuds and Nags are ancient enemies, but they're also cousins. And Garuds are eagle shapeshifters, and Nags are snake shapeshifters. So it makes sense that they're enemies, right? That the Garud would want to eat the Nag and kill it. 
but I just, there's, like you said, that stuff just isn't really known here. Or if it is, it's in a horrible form, like how Dungeons and Dragons took nogs and corrupted them, for example. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it, that's what I want to see change. But I also would love it if we just started teaching all this stuff, all of it, like, like even the, to, mm. this is a bit of a tangent, but even when we talk about, for example, art history, we use that term, but that should be in a universal, globally encompassing term, but it's not, it means, it means white art history. Mm. With, with maybe a little, you know, Latine throw, stuff thrown in, but it's mostly European. And we don't talk about the rest of it. Same with fashion. We talk about fashion. We're talking about European slash American fashion. And that's really frustrating to me that there's no reason we couldn't have all this stuff. We should. I mean, it's so fascinating. It's wonderful. It's what's it, us exploring all our global history, all our global mythology, all our global storytelling is how we're going to keep stuff fresh. Yeah. And I mean, I imagine that they're like, like from what I'm understanding, just talking with you is that when there is this kind of like Eurocentrism, there is like, there's almost this kind of pressure for people who aren't in the Eurocentric oeuvre to, to be, you know, experts in, you know, Hindu mythology. Whereas like other fantasy writers, like they don't need to know the actual origins about Nordic dwarves in order to write <laughs> exactly. about dwarves. Like it's like, make it your own. Like this is loosely based on a particular mythological figure and then, you know, kind of go from there. But there is this additional pressure when you pull from something that is, you know, already been othered, I would imagine. Yes. And in fact, can I quickly add one of my frustrations about this? Our books keep getting seen as like encyclopedias or textbooks or something. I've seen so many reviews, not just about my book, but about others that complain, this didn't teach me enough about fill in the blank. And I'm thinking, oh. but A, it's a novel. It was never intended to teach you anything. And B, when you say that, you are saying that we don't have the same right to play with things the way that white mm -hmm. authors. Yeah. I, this is incredibly anecdotal, but uh, I'm not sure if anyone has watched stories of a school nurse. It's like a K-drama. I haven't, but I saw it show up on Netflix. Yeah, I, I watched it recently, and, and one of the things that I love but I find incredibly difficult is uh, it does draw from, like, real things, kind of like uh, in the place of what I would typically see as a cross. It would show something else, uh, something to ward off uh, evil spirits or demons or anything, but it's so culturally different that it comes off even more like fantasy, but I find it incredibly difficult to sometimes see uh, references that are being made. And granted, I, like you had said earlier, it's just like, oh, I'm just going to accept that. I have no idea what particular plant uh, she's dyeing her nails with that somehow allows her to hurt uh, spirits, but I'm going to accept it at face value. But I really wish I could look it up and see uh, what plant it is and also uh, why, like the history behind it. Uh, you don't have to. You can just accept it at face value. But it is interesting to kind of look a little bit deeper to see where the references are being made when they're more, uh, I don't want to say concrete, but I guess more uh, history-based. Well, I mean, I would say, right, like we should all, we should have the freedom to be able to do that and to not do that. Mm. And, and I think the problem is that there's the, 
there are these weird expectations that get put on marginalized writers that don't get put on mm-hmm. everybody else. Could could you tell us, so just for those of us, a lot of the listeners we have are either new to publishing, writing, or world building. Um, can you give us um, an explanation of what um, hashtag own voices means and what yes. that means for marginalized writers, just so we have a context for it? Yes. So the that tag was actually created by YA author Corinne Duvice, and she, because she noticed that there was this problem that, that if marginalized characters, books about marginalized characters got published, they were usually by people who did not belong to that particular group. So for example, a white author might write a black character and have that book sell at auction for, you know, six or seven figures, but then a black author writing a black character couldn't sell the, that per, their book at all. And that was really a problem. I, I mean, I hope it's clear why it's a problem, but I'll say why it is that first of all, when you're writing outside your own background, you are probably bringing stereotypes to bear whether you realize it or not because you didn't actually live that experience and it's kind of messed up that we would prefer an outsider's view to an insider's and that we don't actually want we want the exoticized version of whatever story is being told rather than from from an actual from uh, somebody who lives that experience so she created that hashtag to try to help identify books that were written by people of that same background, whatever it was, whether it was queer people, you know, disabled people, uh, people of color, trans people, that we got to tell our own stories for once and have mm-hmm. them be seen that way. So if I can ask anything, it would be, please just allow us the same freedom that you would allow anybody else when you're reading our stories and also understand that we're not a monolith any more than anybody else is. So like, mm-hmm you know, what I think may be completely contradicted by another Indian person. And that's totally fine. Like we don't share a hive mind. Yeah. And as someone who comes from like a place of privilege, you know, I've often found that uh, my own ignorance isn't shown until I'm like confronted with uh, like something that I was unfamiliar with. Like I just took a course in modern Arabic literature And the cultural touchstones that I had approaching it from a literary perspective were so different. Like I read Nagim Mufuz's The Beggar and what I took away from it compared to someone who had like a history and a cultural touchstone of Sufism is completely different and understanding and being okay with not knowing, but also being curious about that, I think is one of the most important things about how we grow and learn as people, especially when it comes to to novels and whatnot. Yes, 100%. And I mean, again, this is a failing in our, in our education system that we don't just start teaching this stuff from the ground up all around, or if we do, we do a very shallow version. And, Mm. but, but even otherwise, it's, I think I want to, you know, the, the Buddhists have a concept of beginner's mind where you accept that you don't know anything and you're just humble. And that's Mm. what the place that you begin learning from. And if, if, if we would just all allow ourselves to have that, I think we could learn. We could just accept. How dare you expect anyone to be humble? We are all great and amazing. (laughs) Uh, um, uh, Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, but yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I've been thinking a lot about that, how we get stuck because we have this idea. And this is generic, we obviously, but we have this idea that we already should know everything that's worth knowing. And if it's not, and then we should also be catered to though. So yeah. if we, if we get left feeling like, Hey, this person, 
didn't write with me in mind that I'm going to be, I'm going to think this is a bad book instead of thinking, huh, maybe this book wasn't just wasn't written for me in mind. And that's okay because I'm not the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. I think this is a great segue into talking about your love of Zelda and Street Fighter fan fiction. Yes. Oh, do you? <laughs> we can do it under the pretense of world building. Uh, yeah. Uh, I look. There's no better segue, so I'm I'm gonna go ahead and just be like, please tell me about your love of Zelda and Street Fighter fan fiction. Okay. And honestly, you know, we were talking about some heavy topics, so yeah, we, let's talk about a light one. I okay, this is this is super embarrassing, but I'm just gonna own it. When I was in, you know, when I was a kid, and I was playing the original Legend of Zelda and the and a Link to the Past, I totally had a crush on Link, and so I wrote. I didn't even know what fan fiction was, but I think it's a natural inclination a lot of us have to just continue the stories that we love and often to put ourselves in it, self-inserts, right? Mm -hmm. So so I wrote this story and I never finished it, but I wrote this story about a brown girl. And that's, this is also fascinating to me because at that time, I was still doing what a lot of other authors of color in my cohort had done without realizing it too, that we would write white characters normally because that's what, that's all we had ever read. So it didn't occur to most of us to, that we could write people of color. But but I guess because this is a self-insert, I wrote a brown girl and she had a silver Triforce. And I always wonder where I was going with that. But I, you know, I just thought how cool if, what would this, and I don't even remember anymore because, of, and I wish I still had it, but what the, what the three components of that silver Triforce were, <laughs> but, but it was, I was definitely on some kind of quest. And of course I was going to fall in love with Link at the end and, or, or my self-insert was, I guess. <laughs> and then with the with the Street Fighter fan fiction, my sister and I wrote, I want to say like 30 or 35,000 words of a novel about the characters in Street Fighter. And and I, I wish I still had that too. It would be so fun to read today. Probably really mortifying <laughs> as well, but probably, probably a lot of fun. And we really tried to build on the lore in the game and give the characters like actual backstories and and adventures and uh, yeah, I, I remember it being super fun to write. <laughs> uh, we we just did a uh, two part episode based on the Legend of Zelda. So I mean, I as someone who just recently basically wrote fan fiction for Zelda, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm I'm really curious as to what your silver Triforce was, though. I My know. brain is like, man, I really want to know. I, Me it, too. It's funny. Huh? I said, Me too. <laughs> oh man okay um, um i have some quick world building questions for our um baby world builders out there um because we know star star daughter is not your first rodeo because you've been writing short stories and stories for a long time and you've worked in the publishing world so i want to ask some um craft questions sure um in Star Daughter, I feel like you do a good job seamlessly connecting like the the world we're familiar with, the modern world, and with things like Tupperware and LSAT tests <laughs> and all that, with like mythological creatures and like moon lotuses. So what advice can you give to world builders who want to make their worlds more magical? Well, that's I are we talking about books that are that are at least partially set in our world? I feel like you we can we can apply this even to literary fiction. Let's let's say that. Okay. Well, up what, to you. <laughs> what is magic? And I'm asking this not as a philosophical question, but just honestly, mm -hmm. you know, what is magic? 
what and what is mundane? And that's going to change on the point of view of the person thinking about the question, obviously. But, you know, I know you've all heard that that expression about magic is just like science or technology that hasn't been explained yet. And I don't agree at all. I think if you can explain it, it's not magic. So what would be the thing that makes the world just go slightly off kilter and makes you feel like there could be more? Something that defies explanation, something like I was saying earlier, that's just out of the corner of your eye, or even if you found it, just has an aura of enchantment to it that nothing else can. And if you, if you can figure out what makes you feel like that, maybe you can bring it to the page. And then I'm going to, and that's so funny that you mentioned the Tupperware because Holly Black also brought that up when we were doing my virtual launch party. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> she thought that was hilarious. And see, I wasn't thinking of that. So let me, for anyone who has a red star daughter to explain this Tupperware reference. So I had mentioned Sheetal's, uh, her foy, her paternal aunt earlier, Radhika foy. Radhika foy is very, very practical, very domineering, very protective. And one of the things that Indian people will really, you know, I think people of all quote unquote old country what they love to do is show their love through food. So even though Sheetal and Minal are about to go to the heavenly realm where, you know, there's probably going to be really amazing food, Radhika Foy cannot let them go without packing Tupperware of full of food to send on their way. She just can't handle the thought that they might not be eating for one minute. And I didn't even realize that that was a good way to ground the story until Holly pointed it out later. But what she was trying to say and what I agree with and the advice I would give now is if you, so the, so magic is going to be something depending on how you write it, that may be very ethereal and undefinable, numinous. So, but you, you can't have an entire story be only that, or there's nothing for the reader to latch onto. So then you can bring in your mundane stuff like the Tupperware, things that ground us in the story and balance that numinous quality. So that's what I tried to do. But, or like Holly had mentioned too, that in the night market, there's an example of something being compared to the color of grape jelly. Cause she was like, grape jelly, that's such a mundane food. And just thinking of how, how things can not coincide. That's not the right word. I'm, I can't think of the word that I'm looking for, but overlap maybe mm-hmm. and how you can how you can bring the magic close closer for the reader and still allow it to be numinous but also give the reader a foothold in the story does that make sense absolutely that's what i was looking for because i feel like it's more than just um like literal magical things it's more about um juxtaposing like you said the numinous yes, that's the word i wanted thank you yeah yeah <laughs> I have a question about uh, YA in general. Like I I often find that uh, YA fiction is really pushing the boundaries in a more cultural level compared to perhaps what I would consider to be a little bit more stuffy, traditionalist, you know, kind of lit. So uh, I would love if you could talk about your experience for writing YA and being part of the YA community. Sure. Um, That's actually a great question because... Since I decided, you know, since I've, even though my first book only came out this year, right in August, 
I, or actually, I'm not sure when this podcast is going live. So I'll say August, 2020, but I decided I was going to do this back, like I said, in 2006, 2007. And back then people would tell me, well-meaning people, like no one was trying to be mean when they said this, but they would tell me, oh, you want to write, you know, Indian characters. Well, you should just self-publish because no one will want to pay for that. No one want to buy this. And they say that, oh. And well, I mean, I, I, I got very angry about it. But I can't completely fault them for saying that because if you looked at what was being published, they weren't wrong. I mean, publishing had this quote unquote received wisdom that only white stories, only straight stories, et cetera, you know, only able stories about able-bodied people, only those were universal and everything else is niche, which of mm -hmm. course is crap, mm -hmm. but that was right. the accepted wisdom. So, and I, again, I'm wisdom in quotation marks, obviously. But that was, you know, what was considered so. And so, and I, I wonder how many people got, never got started because they were told something like that. I'm glad that I just got mad and mentally flipped those people the finger. But, <laughs> but like, I'm sure not everybody did. And, you know, and I did even get told with some of my stories along the way, my short stories even, that, and I think they're pretty accessible, but I still got told that I hadn't explained enough or whatever that. And it, and it just got me thinking about how we really, a lot of what we, and maybe this is me going into my spirituality a bit, but we really take a lot of things without question. We take them on faith. And I don't, didn't mean to make a pun there, but I guess I did. That we really tend to not question a lot of things. So if somebody, so those people who told me no one would want this story, never stop to ask themselves why that would be the case or what we should do about it and why they thought that. And, and publishing itself was like that for a very long time too, until first we had the own voices hashtag and then the we need diverse books movement, because I wasn't the only one getting this reaction by far. So many people were getting told no one would want this. No one would read this story. Or if you're writing about yourself, like it always had to be autobiographical. That was part of it, which is so frustrating because no, it's not. Yes, of course you bring pieces of yourself to everything you write, but we're making stuff up. We're making people up. We should have the freedom to do that. But also that it was our job to educate by doing this, which, you know, so for example, if I'm writing about a brown girl, it needs to be about the pain of being brown, mm -hmm. her oppression, how she deals mm -hmm. with racism. And that's not the stuff I want to write at all. I want to write fun stories that... <sighs> just like the ones I grew up reading only featuring people who look like me. That's, um, but there's this weird, these weird, there are these weird unquestioned assumptions about what that means. So I'm really, really, really grateful that a bunch of other authors, including Ellen O just got sick of this and started the on Twitter. It started on Twitter, even though it became a nonprofit organization later, the we need diverse books movement and called all this into question and forced publishers mm. to admit their biases. I mean, they still have a long way to go, but we've started to see a definite shift in the tide. Books that are being published right now would not have been able to be published even, I want to say, five years ago, seven years ago. Mm -hmm. And I'm really grateful. So watching that landscape change, but I think that's the difference. The reason we're not seeing quite as much of a sea change in adult fiction is that the We Need Diverse Books movement was mostly focused on kid lit. Mm -hmm. And we got to make the point that 
well, story can affect everyone because everything we think about the world is a story. The way we look at the world is a story, right? But the ones who get affected most by that are kids. So we need to give them the opportunity to see themselves and also to see other people as real. So, I mean, that, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that still applies to adults as well. And I'd like to see that change happen in adult fiction too. But I can understand like why for now it's mostly been focused on YA. Mm -hmm. But that said, I've heard from a few people, a few YA readers who told me how much it meant to see someone who looked like them on the cover of my book and Mm -hmm. also to have a story about someone like them. And it wasn't even just Hindu people who said this. It was even, uh, you know, some Muslim people reached out to me, even a white person reached out to me to say she felt seen. And it just got me thinking again about how so many of the ideas we have about what people want and don't want really is, again, received quote unquote wisdom. And we're not actually testing those boundaries by seeing if they're true or we've just decided they are. And so it becomes this vicious cycle where we only buy and, and market certain things. And then, and of course, those things are successful because they've been bought and marketed. Well, you know, <laughs> uh, I, I imagine that you, you know, like there, there's probably b- before this movement started, there's probably a, a large enough portion of people who are starving for this type of content. And just because conventional, you know, air quotes wisdom says that, oh, well, this won't sell, it, it, you know, it's, it's a matter of, well, you don't know, and actually, there's a there is an entire market that you're entirely missing out on because you won't admit your biases, and you won't even give it a chance. You know, bingo. Which is, yeah, which is even worse, right? Like it's it's it comes down to a marketing gimmick, which I understand that they're running a, a business and everything like that. But at the same time, it's oh, it's utterly frustrating, and I can't even imagine what it must feel like as a writer in that position. Uh, I mean, it, yeah, I it's. It was really awful. And I, we, like I said, we still have a long way to go, but it is heartening to me to see that start to shift. And I know with my editor at Harper Teen, she never wanted me to change anything about the book to make it more quote unquote palatable to the white gaze. She wanted, you know, mm. she, she said, I want this book the way it is. What I'm going to help you with is strengthening the plot, et cetera. But like the, but I don't want to mess with any of the rest of it. And that made me really happy. And I thought, because we we can do good with story. And I'd like to see us do more of that. And I think that we will as time goes on. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that especially with YA, it comes down to generational change more than yes. anything else, which is great. You know, mm-hmm. I'm I'm a big believer that you it's hard to change people directly. You have to trick them into changing. Yeah, right. <laughs> Novels are a good way to do that. Yeah, yeah especially younger people. Yeah. Yes, yes. Agreed. All right. So we are now at the point of the world building jam session, which I'm very excited about. Yeah. And for those of you who might not know how this works, basically we have some charts over here and we roll some dice and we help create a story scenario based on those dice rolls. And first we're going to roll the genre of this story and it can be between science fiction, fantasy, horror, modern day romance or a superhero genre. We're going to roll that now. We're looking at a horror story and the subject of this horror story is going to be between an item, a monster, a place, an historical figure, an event or a cataclysm. And we will see an item. So we have a horror story based on an item 
and we throw in one of the seven archetypes of story, whether they be overcoming the monster, rags to riches, the quest, voyage and return, comedy, tragedy, and rebirth. So let's see what we get for this horror story about an item. Uh, we're doing tragedy, which tracks. So yeah. Um, Shweta, as our special guest, I would love for you to start us off here, please. Okay. So what, what do you want me to do with that? Uh, whatever comes to mind. So we have a horror genre story based around an item and the archetypal story that we're dealing with is tragedy. So if you can just come up with a scenario or start a scenario with that idea in mind, that's like a, like a premise, basically. Okay. Essentially. Okay. Well, since we were talking earlier about Rakshasas, how about we, we take a Rakshasi, yeah. a female Rakshas, and she has a book and it's bound in human skin, Ooh, but human course. skin that for some reason is dyed blue. Oh yes, absolutely. Like, I don't know why it just is. And you don't need this isn't about answers, okay? It's about <laughs> making it a okay. It's just it's mysteriously we'll it blue, a really beautiful, like cyan blue. And let's see, and she is tra trailing it with her as she moves through time. That's perfect. Oh, she moves okay. through time? Oh, interesting. Okay. All right. So I, I love that already. Uh, where do we want to go in terms of like really ratcheting up a, the horror? That's what I'm interested in. I have a question about the time part. Is she is she moving through time in the sense that she's like ageless or is she literally moving through time? Like backwards and forwards. Yeah. Both. Moving through time Ooh. like we all are. Nice. Both. So like she's, she's on a journey. Time travels of life. Yep. Okay. Yep. All right, so so let's ratchet up the horror then here, can we? Okay. Yeah. Um, so when when I hear about uh, a rakshasi who who is has a, a skin a skin tone and travels through time, I'd like to imagine that whenever she gets in trouble, she goes back to the past and basically wipes out the lineage of whoever is the one who's going to start trouble with her oh. to begin with. Oh. So it's. It's not like, oh, I have to worry about you. It's like, no, I'm going to go back and kill, you know, your great grandfather. That way you don't ever have to, I don't have to worry about you in my present, you know? So she's saving mm. herself in a way. I have a feeling that the um, origin or nature of her book has something to do with the tragedy element in this. Uh, little yes. Part. Yeah. Let's, let's, oh, that's a, that's a great point, Daniel. How do we want to focus in on the mm -hmm. tragic element with the book in particular? Like it may have been someone, this, this book might've been someone that she knew or that she like, um, like canceled in a sense. Ooh. Um, you could do mm -hmm. it where the book is telling the story of all of the timelines or ways that oh. she destroyed and how her life could have been and how it would have been happy, but she yeah. keeps on destroying it and keeps on going for a different end just for minor inconveniences. Oh, so it tells the true story that like, yeah. despite her having destroyed all the times, but only tells her what the future would be once she destroys that. Oh. So it's kind of like, Oh, I destroyed it, which means I prevented this and That's this happening, weird. but it turns out that I also did not have allowed this to happen. Oh man. But but if we take that tragic element, right? Like maybe maybe we can t take a look at that and be like she's trying to give herself a happy ending. And she oh, doesn't man. know it, but by by doing all these horrific acts, she is actually just making it worse for herself. So she is constantly looking for happiness, you know, by by going back and finding the timeline or the 
the way that she can achieve happiness, but for her, it only makes it worse. Like maybe the book itself is, is cursed in a way that makes her think that she's trying to do good or trying to do good by herself. Uh, I, I don't I know. Think that, I think that book was someone, the book, cause it's made of human skin, right? It's someone she knew and she's the, 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 her need to find like a happy ending results from having lost that person. Oh, that's great. Like someone she lost in right. this, that like, oh, so she's carrying this book with her as a constant reminder yes. of that loss. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Ooh. All right. So, uh, any, any last words before we move into the twist? I was just thinking that I was loving listening to all of you decide what all that meant. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's how it works. That's how, and so now we get to take all that really fun, interesting ideas, and now we get to fuck it up by throwing in a twist. Okay. Uh, and there's too many twists to read, so I'm going to roll the die, and we're just going to, I'm going to give you what it is. Okay. So let's see. All right. Uh, again, part of the reason I love this twist is because it takes what we know and it makes us like think laterally and think in a very different way. And the way that we're thinking very differently is the world is underwater slash in the ground slash under magma. So <laughs> what? Wait, are all of those things true or is it saying pick one? I think we can pick one. Pick one. Uh, yeah, because yeah, I was also wondering how that would <laughs> it's like an egg or an onion. It's just multiple layers. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like the material world, the material plane, and then all the other planes of existence. Actually, around that it. does make sense. I mean, that does actually that does make sense. So having it layers like an onion. Let's do layers then. Heck, all right, yeah. Oh. All right. So so how so we okay? But we again, I want to make sure that we we stay true to the roots here. How does this factor into the horror of this situation? Like, let's let's try and figure that out a little bit more. What if these layers have come about because every so if if this Lapshisi cannot accept the tragedy that has already befallen her, right? She keeps trying to change it then every time she does, a new layer of world is created. And she doesn't understand that. She keeps thinking, I'll get there eventually to where I'm trying to go. But what's actually happening is she's separating herself from her heart more and more physically. Like, I mean, instead of it just being a metaphor, it's literal too, that these layers of world keep getting created and separating herself from any kind of peace she could ever have. She's entombing herself is what she's perfect. Yeah. In these metaphysical realms. That's so cool. That's literally creating distance. Yeah. Yeah, That's, that's crazy. That is, that's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that we're going to do better than that. Like I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Sometimes sometimes the plot twist takes like a little bit of needling out. No, sometimes people just nail it in one and you actually did that. Okay. A celestial body of a tomb. Or would it be a cosmic one if it's cosmic tomb? Yeah. Hmm. That's a good question. But we're going to go into our rapid fire question round now. So, uh, Shweta, my, uh, my wife really wants to know, is cereal a soup? <sighs> I'm going to say no. Okay. Yes. All right. Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, so what have you been reading lately? Well, actually, I had said before we started recording that I'm listening to an audiobook right now. In fact, I have about an hour left of it. And it's called You Let Me In. And it's a very creepy book, an adult novel about a woman who 
was either abused or really does see fairies and it's mm. very creepy so uh, that and then more recently what was i reading before that oh see now i'm forgetting <laughs> but you know i've i've been having trouble reading this year and i know i'm not the only one so i hope that changes soon but like my focus is a little more scattered than it used to be but i definitely finished reading uh uh oh the best the best he can was it the best he can be or the best at it by malik puncholi which is a middle grade novel i read i listened to that and I actually finished like reading on paper something that is not coming to mind at all. So I guess I'll just leave it there. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Daniel hit him with the rapid fire questions. Sure. So I had a rapid fire question, but we got it. We got it solved before, which was, I was going to ask what's your favorite street fighter, but we know that's Chun-Li. So we're good there. My other rapid fire question would be, what's your favorite mythological creature? That is hard. Oh my goodness. That is really hard. Especially because I'm someone who doesn't have one favorite anything. Yep. Yeah, pick one. Damn it. Um, <laughs> I'll accept the top three. I'll accept the top three. Okay. I'll top three. Top that's, three that's, a little, that's a little easier. I'll say an Apsara, which is a Hindu heavenly nymph, a celestial nymph, and a dancer and also a seductress. Like if you, she, they would often, they're so beautiful that they would often get sent down to t- try to tempt sages away from their practice. And sometimes they did it. Uh, definitely worth looking into. Uh, nags for sure. I'm. I've always just loved them. I joke that I'm a part-time nagini myself, a female nag. They're human <laughs> serpent shapeshifters. They can either take human form, serpent form, or halfway form, where their upper half is human and their lower half is this cobra tail. And they have a healing jewel called the nagmani that can resurrect people who died. And of course, like I said earlier, they're the cousins of the and, and mortal enemies of the gudus, eagle shapeshifters. So for sure, Nogs. And then finally, who would be my last person? Either it would be a toss-up between Rakshasis, or female Rakshasis, or Dian, these witchy creatures. I'm I'm all for the female monsters always, so. <laughs> all right. Uh, Daniel, any other questions? Uh, oh, I'll ask you one other quick question. Um, what would be, if, if we're going to listen to, since Start Hour is about, like, about music, celestial music, um, do you have a Daisy song you could recommend to us to listen to? Yes, yeah. I do. And it's, uh, oh my goodness, I made a whole playlist and now not a one of them is coming to me. So instead of giving <laughs> a song, what I'm going to do is recommend a couple singers. Okay. So back in the day of Bollywood playback, the I mean, it's still a thing, but like the the very famous classic ones were Kishore Kumar, who Sheetal's boyfriend Dave supposedly sings like. He His voice is just really beautiful. Definitely look for him. You can find him on YouTube. Or Lata Mangeshkar. She's considered the queen of Bollywood playback singing. And all her stuff is just really, really beautiful. So I would say those two to start with. I listened to a lot of them while I was writing and revising. All right. And uh, who is someone you would like to shout out who isn't yourself? Like in terms of writer or anyone for any reason. Or just yell a name. <laughs> okay, I'm going to do a random one. I was thinking of a writer, but I'm going to do someone else instead. My dear friend, Lindsay O'Brien, she is a an artist, a fabulous artist, a photographer, and did my, um, a graphic designer and did my amazing website. And I, you know, she's definitely, her, go check out her stuff. She's fabulous. You can Google Lumina Noctis and you'll find her that way or Lindsay O'Brien. Fabulous. And finally, where can we find you and your novel and both? 
Well, my novel should be available from any retailer you like, virtual or in-person, brick and mortar. It's from Harper Teens. You could even buy it on HarperCollins' website. And as for me, I tried to make it easy. So you can find me at my website, which is shwetatukarai.com. And in fact, if you go there, you can go check out the night market because not only is it illustrated there by Asma Kazi, but also we made a little shop where you can go shopping at the night market and read a little story about it. So if you want to do that. And I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at, at Shweta Chakrar. And even on Facebook, though, I don't really, I really only post on Facebook. I don't really look at it. So may. <laughs> All right. Uh, Shweta, thank you so much for joining us this uh, week. It's been really fun. Oh, I, this is great. It's super fun too uh, for me. And we're back. So gentlemen, what was your favorite part about our interview today? And you can't say the fan fiction part because that's mine. I'm taking them. Oh, I'm calling it now. Yeah, oh, yeah. Magic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Chris actually had a question that he wasn't able to ask on air, but he really wanted to know more about like the magical experiences that um, Shweta went through. Yeah. But Chris, talk more about that. Oh, that's God. Oh, sweet here. Jesus. No, I was just asking about uh, a time that uh, reaffirmed her belief in magic in everyday life. And what did she she told us it was um, she had seen they took a photo they took a photograph and they saw this yeah photograph orb. with orbs yeah or that was the most latest one that reaffirmed yeah I really wish that we could have actually gotten that on the recording but it's impossible to click re-record once you've done something so I've heard anyway. Uh, but no, I really, I really enjoy uh, getting to have conversations about stuff like that, especially about representation, because uh, again, I feel like it's a really uh, interesting topic to talk about. And I think that having the correct attitude is really important when you're talking about this type of stuff, especially as someone who, you know, is, is a mostly straight white guy, you know, and um, I think it's important to kind of do my due diligence and have an open mind. And I encourage other people to do so as well. I mean, I really like um, when we talked about <clears throat> the use of cultural terminology or even like any 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 other other language that could be othered um, in, in her novel. She's just kind of unapologetic about, you know, incorporating it. And you just you learn things as you go, which I feel like it really helps with immersion in world building, because that's what it's all about. Like when we're trying to do world building. Mm -hmm. We're trying to make a place that feels real, you know, and not italicizing words like that is one small step to doing it. Yeah, the, italici the italicizing words thing is actually really interesting because as someone like I, it's never even occurred to me to ever have to make that concession while writing. Right. Even if I am writing about something that is inherently fantastical yeah. and to kind of get that perspective on it is actually, I, I think, really valuable. Mm -hmm. Oh, and, and the other the other thing about like representation that I also did want to talk about um, Street Fighter fan fiction uh, again. I know it's a hard cut. I don't give a fuck. This is what we do. <laughs> but uh, obviously Chun-Li is best girl when it comes to Street Fighter. But hold on. Mm. If I'm going pure husbando when it comes to Street Fighter, I'm going Vega. Uh, I'm sure he's a selfish lover. In fact, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I would bet money on it. Pretty uh, sure he's a narcissist. Yes. Well, he, Daniel, he wears a mask when he fights so he can pr protect his pretty, pretty face. So yes, obviously he's, a <laughs> I mean, that's just smart. Like, you know, 
No, it clouds yeah. your vision. It, his field of view is worse, putting him at a disadvantage. <laughs> yeah, that's why he has a claw with blades. That's true. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Also, I, I apologize because, yes, Vega is claw, by the way. That I want to make sure that that gets out there. Because remember that in Street Fighter, the, the names are different depending on where you're talking about. Oh. So, uh, for, exa- for example, M. Bison is actually, in, in Japan, is actually Balrog. and Because M. Bison, Mike Tyson, he's the boxer. So... When you're talking about different characters in Street Fighter, you actually might have to be like, hey, Claw, Dictator, Boxer, because Wait, those is, three names are all changed. Is or, M. Or Bison really supposed to be Mike Tyson? I yes. did not know that. And also yes. he's named Balrog? Oh my God. The, okay. the Okay. In the American version, wow, this one's going long and I, I'm, I'm loving it. I get to explain this fucking lore of Street Fighter. Why did okay, you so, try and tempt me with Balrog as getting me into Street Fighter? Uh, I don't know. I just Because a name isn't going to make you good at fighting games, Chris. I mean, it at least involves Lord of the Rings and I can try and do that. <laughs> All right. So, so the way that it works, right? In Japan, Balrog, as we know him, who is the boxer is M. Bison, because it's supposed to be Mike Tyson, right? And then Balrog in Japan is who we know as Vega or Claw, which is, again, you just described them. And then M. Bison is uh, Vega in Japan. So when you're talking about the different characters, you often have to talk about Claw, Boxer, or Dictator, depending on who you're talking to about the game. Wow, I did not know any of these things. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I'm big Street Fighter nerd. I I I grew like Chris grew up playing Counter Strike. I grew up playing arcade machines that involved a lot of kicking and punching. I mean, I saw the movie. That was great. The movie is great. Yes, Raul Julia in that is fucking fantastic. See, Shweta, this is a reason to dust off that old Super Nintendo and get back into gaming. Yep. Anyway, Vega's the best boy. Uh, Chun-Li's the best girl. Uh, We love you very much, and we will see you next week. And thanks for getting through it with us together.